Section 9 of The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 4. Edited by Charles F. Horne, Rossiter Johnson, and John Rudd. Foundation of Venice, A.D. 452 by Thomas Hodgkin. The Foundation of Venice, Venetia, is an incident in the history of Attila's incursions, at the head of his Huns, into Italy, after his defeat at the Battle of Chalons-sur-Marne. Venetia was then a large and fertile province of northern Italy, and fifty Venetian cities flourished in peace and safety under the protection of the empire. After Attila's remorseless hordes had taken and destroyed Aquileia, near the head of the Adriatic, they swept, with resistless fury, through Venetia, whose cities were so utterly destroyed that their very sites could henceforth scarcely be identified. The inhabitants fled in large numbers to the shores of the Adriatic, where, at the extremity of the gulf, a group of a hundred islets is separated by shallows from the mainland of Italy. Here the Venetians built their city on what had hitherto been uncultivated and almost uninhabited sandbanks under such unfavorable circumstances was started the career of that wonderful city which afterward became queen of the adriatic and mother of art science and learning the two greatest authorities on venice are thomas hodgkin who made a life study of italy and her invaders and the immortal ruskin whose grandly descriptive articles were written in the atmosphere of venice and the adriatic sea thomas hodgkin the terrible invaders, made wrathful and terrible by the resistance of Aquileia, streamed through the trembling cities of Venetia. Each earlier stage in the itinerary shows a town blotted out by their truly Tartar genius for destruction. At a distance of thirty-one miles from Aquileia stood the flourishing colony of Tullia Concordia, so named, probably, in commemoration of the universal peace which, four hundred and eighty years before augustus had established in the world concordia was destroyed and only an insignificant little village now remains to show where it once stood at another interval of thirty-one miles stood altinum with its white villas clustering round the curves of its lagoons and rivaling baie in its luxurious charms Altinum was effaced as Concordia and as Aquileia. Yet another march of thirty-two miles brought the squalid invaders to Patavium, proud of its imagined Trojan origin, and, with better reason, proud of having given birth to Livy. Patavium, too, was leveled with the ground. True, it has not like its sister towns remained in the nothingness to which Attila reduced it, it is now many-domed Padua proud, but all its great buildings date from the Middle Ages. Only a few broken friezes and a few inscriptions in its museum exist as memorials of the classic Patavium. As the Huns marched on Vicenza, Verona, Brescia, Bergamo, all opened their gates at their approach, for the terror which they inspired was on every heart. In these towns, and in Milan and Pavia, Tikinum, which followed their example, the Huns enjoyed, doubtless to the full, their wild revel of lust and spoliation, but they left the buildings unharmed, 
and they carried captive the inhabitants instead of murdering them. The valley of the Po was now wasted to the heart's content of the invaders. Should they cross the Apennines and blot out Rome, as they had blotted out Aquileia from among the cities of the world? This was the great question that was being debated in the Hunnish camp, and, strange to say, the voices were not all for war. Already Italy began to strike that strange awe into the hearts of her northern conquerors, which so often in later ages has been her best defense. The remembrance of Alaric, cut off by a mysterious death immediately after his capture of Rome, was present in the mind of Attila, and was frequently insisted upon by his counselors, who seemed to have had a foreboding that only while he lived would they be great and prosperous. While this discussion was going forward in the barbarian camp, all voices were hushed, and the attention of all was aroused by the news of the arrival of an embassy from Rome. What had been going on in that city, it is not easy to ascertain. The emperor seems to have been dwelling there, not at Ravenna. Ischius shows a strange lack of courage or of resource, and we find it difficult to recognize in him the victor of the Moriac plains. He appears to have been even meditating flight from Italy, and to have thought of persuading Valentinian to share his exile. But counsels a shade less timorous prevailed. Someone suggested that possibly even the Hun might be satiated with havoc, and that an embassy might assist to mitigate the remainder of his resentment. Accordingly, ambassadors were sent in the once mighty name of the emperor and the senate and the people of Rome to crave for peace, and these were the men who were now ushered into the camp of Attila. The envoys had been well chosen to satisfy that punctilious pride which insisted that only men of the highest dignity among the Romans should be sent to treat with the lord of Scythia and Germany. Avienus, who had, two years before, worn the robes of consul, was one of the ambassadors. Trigestius, who had wielded the powers of a prefect, and who, seventeen years before, had been dispatched upon a similar mission to Genseric the Vandal, was another. But it was not upon these men, but upon their greater colleague, that the eyes of all the barbarian warriors and statesmen were fixed. Leo, bishop of Rome, had come, on behalf of his flock, to sue for peace from the idolater. The two men who had thus at last met by the banks of the Mincio are certainly the grandest figures whom the fifth century can show to us, at any rate, since Alaric vanished from the scene. Attila, we, by this time, know well enough. Adequately to describe Pope Leo I, we should have to travel too far into the region of ecclesiastical history. Chosen Pope in the year 440, he was now about halfway through his long pontificate, one of the few which have nearly rivaled the twenty-five years traditionally assigned to St. Peter. A firm disciplinarian, not to say a persecutor, he had caused the Priscillianists of Spain and the Manichees of Rome to feel his heavy hand. A powerful rather than subtle theologian, he had asserted the claims of Christian common sense as against the endless refinements of oriental speculation concerning the nature of the Son of God. Like an able Roman general, he had traced, in his letters on the Eutychian controversy, 
the lines of the fortress in which the defenders of the catholic verity were thenceforward to entrench themselves and from which they were to repel the assaults of monophysites on the one hand and of nestorians on the other these lines had been enthusiastically accepted by the great council of chalcedon held in the year of attila's gaulish campaign and remain from that day to this the authoritative utterance of the church concerning the mysterious union of the godhead and the manhood in the person of jesus christ and all these gifts of will of intellect and of soul were employed by leo with undeviating constancy with untired energy in furthering his great aim the exaltation of the dignity of the popedom the conversion of the admitted primacy of the bishops of rome into an absolute and world-wide spiritual monarchy whatever our opinions may be as to the influence of this spiritual monarchy on the happiness of the world or its congruity with the character of the teacher in whose words it professed to root itself we cannot withhold a tribute of admiration for the high temper of this roman bishop who in the ever-deepening degradation of his country still despaired not but had the courage and endurance to work for a far distant future who when the roman was becoming the common drudge and footstool of all nations still remembered the proud words tu regere imperio populus romane memento and under the very shadow of attila and genseric prepared for the city of romulus a new and spiritual dominion vaster and more enduring than any which had been won for her by julius or by hadrian such were the two men who stood face to face in the summer of four hundred fifty two upon the plains of lombardy the barbarian king had all the material power in his hand and he was working but for a twelvemonth the pontiff had no power but in the world of intellect and his fabric was to last fourteen centuries they met as has been said by the banks of the mincio jordanis tells us that it was where the river is crossed by many wayfarers coming and going some writers think that these words point to the ground now occupied by the celebrated fortress of pesquiera close to the point where the mincio issues from the lake of garda others place the interview at governolo a little village hard by the junction of the mincio and the po if the latter theory be true and it seems to fit well with the route which would probably be taken by attila the meeting took place in virgil's country and almost in sight of the very farm where titurus and melibius chatted at evening under the beech tree leah's success as an ambassador was complete attila laid aside all the fierceness of his anger and promised to return across the danube and to live thenceforward at peace with the romans but in his usual style in the midst of reconciliation he left a loophole for a future wrath for he insisted still on this point above all that honoria the sister of the emperor and the daughter of the augusta placidia should be sent to him with a portion of the royal wealth which was her due and he threatened that unless this was done he would lay upon italy a far heavier punishment than any which it had yet borne but for the present at any rate the tide of devastation was turned and few events more powerfully impressed the imagination of that new and blended world 
which was now standing at the threshold of the dying empire, than this retreat of Attila, the dreaded king of kings, before the unarmed successor of St. Peter. Attila was already predisposed to moderation by the counsels of his ministers. The awe of Rome was upon him, and upon them, and he was forced incessantly to ponder the question. What if I conquer like Alaric, to die like him? Upon these doubts and ponderings of his, supervened the stately presence of Leo, a man of holy life, firm will, dauntless courage, that, be sure, Attila perceived in the first moments of their interview, and, besides this, holding an office honored and venerated through all the civilized world. The barbarian yielded to his spell as he had yielded to that of Lippus of Troy, and, according to a tradition, which, it must be admitted, is not very well authenticated, he jocularly excused his unaccustomed gentleness by saying that he knew how to conquer men, but the lion and the wolf, Leo and Lupus, had learned how to conquer him. The tradition which asserts that the Republic of Venice and its neighbor cities in the lagoons were peopled by fugitives from the Hunnish invasion of 452 is so constant, and in itself so probable, that we seem bound to accept it as substantially true, though contemporary or nearly contemporary evidence to the fact is utterly wanting. The thought of the glorious city in the sea so dazzles our imaginations when we turn our thoughts toward Venice, that we must take a little pains to free ourselves from the spell, and reproduce the aspect of the desolate islands and far-stretching wastes of sand and sea to which the fear of Attila drove the delicately nurtured Roman provincials for a habitation. If we examine on the map the well-known and deep recess of the Adriatic Sea, we shall at once be struck by one marked difference between its eastern and its northern shores. For three hundred miles down the Dalmatian coast, not one large river, scarcely a considerable stream, descends from the two closely towering Dineric mountains to the sea. If we turn now to the northwestern angle, which formed the shore of the Roman province of Venetia, we find the coastline broken by at least seven streams, two of which are great rivers. These seven streams, whose mouths are crowded into less than eighty miles of coast, drain an area which, reckoning from Monteviso to the Turgon Alps, the source of the Isonzo, must be four hundred and fifty miles in length, and may average two hundred miles in breadth, and this area is bordered on one side by the highest mountains in Europe, snow-covered, glacier-strewn, wrinkled and twisted into a thousand valleys and narrow defiles, each of which sends down its river or its rivulet, to swell the great outpour. For our present purpose, and as a worker out of Venetian history, Po, notwithstanding the far greater volume of his waters, is of less importance than the six other small streams which bear him company. He, carrying down the fine alluvial soil of Lombardy, goes on lazily adding, foot by foot, to the depth of his delta, and mile by mile to its extent. They, swiftly hurrying over their shorter course from mountain to sea, scatter indeed many fragments, detached from their native rocks, 
over the first meadows which they meet with in the plain, but carry some also far out to sea, and then, behind the bulwark which they thus have made, deposit the finer alluvial particles with which they, too, are laden. Thus we get the two characteristic features of the ever-changing coastline, the Lido and the Laguna. The Lido, founded upon the masses of rock, is a long, thin slip of the terra firma, which form a sort of advance guard of the land. The Laguna, occupying the interval between the Lido and the true shore, is a wide expanse of waters, generally very few feet in depth, with a bottom of fine sand and with a few channels of deep water, the representatives of the forming rivers winding intricately among them. In such a configuration of land and water, the state of the tide makes a striking difference in the scene. And unlike the rest of the Mediterranean, the Adriatic does possess a tide, small, it is true, in comparison with the greater tides of ocean, for the whole difference between high and low water at the flood is not more than six feet, and the average flow is said not to amount to more than two feet six inches. But even this flux is sufficient to produce large tracts of sea which the reflux converts into square miles of oozy sand. Here, between sea and land, upon this detritus of the rivers, settled the detritus of humanity. The Gothic and the Lombard invasions contributed probably their share of fugitives, but fear of the Hunnish world-waster, whose very name, according to some, was derived from one of the mighty rivers of Russia, was the great degrading influence that carried down the fragments of Roman civilization and strewed them over the desolate lagoons. The inhabitants of Aquileia, or at least the feeble remnants that escaped the sword of Attila, took refuge at Grado. Concordia migrated to Caprularia, now Caorle. The inhabitants of Altinum, abandoning their ruined villas, founded their new habitations upon seven islands at the mouth of the Piave, which, according to tradition, they named from the seven gates of their old city, Torcellus, Maiurbius, Boreana, Ammiana, Constantiacum, and Anianum. The representatives of some of these names, Torcello, Mazzorbo, Burano, are familiar sounds to the Venetian at the present day. From Padua came the largest stream of emigrants. They left the tomb of their mythical ancestor Antenor and built their humble dwellings upon the islands of the rivers Altus and Methamochus, better known to us as Rialto and Malamocco. This Paduan settlement was one day to be known to the world by the name of Venice. But let us not suppose that the future queen of the Adriatic sprang into existence at a single bound by Constantinople or Alexandria. For two hundred and fifty years, that is to say, for eight generations, the refugees on the islands of the Adriatic prolonged an obscure and squalid existence, fishing, salt manufacturing, damming out the waves with wattled vine branches driving piles into the sandbanks, and thus gradually extending the area of their villages. Still, these were but fishing villages, loosely confederated together, loosely governed, poor and insignificant, so that the anonymous geographer of Ravenna, writing in the seventh century, can only say of them, 
in the country of Venetia there are some few islands which are inhabited by men. This seems to have been their condition, though perhaps gradually growing in commercial importance, until, at the beginning of the 8th century, the concentration of political authority in the hands of the first doge, and the recognition of the Rialto cluster of islands as the capital of the confederacy, started the republic on a career of success and victory, in which for seven centuries she met no lasting check. But this lies far beyond the limit of our present subject. It must be again said that we have not to think of the pleasant place of all festivity, but of a few huts among the sandbanks, inhabited by Roman provincials, who mournfully recall their charred and ruined habitations by the Brenta and the Piave. The sea alone does not constitute their safety. If that were all, the pirate ships of the Vandal Genseric might repeat upon their poor dwellings all the terror of Attila. But it is in their amphibious life, in that strange blending of land and sea, which is exhibited by the lagoons, that their safety lies. Only experienced pilots can guide a vessel of any considerable draft through the mazy channels of deep water, which intersect these lagoons, and should they seem to be in imminent peril from the approach of an enemy, they will defend themselves not like the Dutch, by cutting the dikes which barricade them from the ocean, but by pulling up the poles which even those pilots need to indicate their pathway through the waters. There, then, engaged in their humble, beaver-like labors, we leave, for the present, the Venetian refugees from the rage of Attila. But even while protesting, it is impossible not to let into our minds some thought of what those desolate fishing villages will one day become. The dim religious light, half revealing the slowly gathered glories of St. Mark's, the ducal palace, that history in stone, the Rialto, with the babble of many languages, the piazza with its flock of fearless pigeons, the brazen horses, the winged lion, the bucentaur, all that the artists of Venice did to make her beautiful, her ambassadors to make her wise, her secret tribunals to make her terrible. Memories of these things must come thronging upon the mind at the mere mention of her spell-like name. Now, with these pictures glowing vividly before you, wrench the mind away with sudden effort to the dreary plains of Pannonia. Think of the moody Tartar sitting in his log-hut, surrounded by his barbarous guests, of Zircon gabbling his uncouth mixture of Hunnish and Latin, of the bathmen of Onegash and the wool-work of Kreka, and the reed candles in the village of Bleda's widow, and say, if cause and effect were ever more strangely meted in history than the rude and brutal mind of Attila with the stately and gorgeous and subtle Republic of Venice. One more consideration is suggested to us by that which was the noblest part of the work of Venice, the struggle which she maintained for centuries, really in behalf of all Europe, against the Turk. Attila's power was soon to pass away, but in the ages that were to come, another Turanian race was to arise, as brutal as the Huns, but with their fierceness sharp-pointed and hardened into a far more fearful weapon of offense by the fanaticism of Islam. These descendants of the kinsfolk of Attila were the Ottomans, 
and but for the barrier which, like their own Murazzi against the waves, the Venetians interposed against the Ottomans, it is scarcely too much to say that half Europe would have undergone the misery of subjection to the organized anarchy of the Turkish Pachas. The Tartar Attila, when he gave up Aquileia and her neighbor cities to the tender mercies of his myrmidons, little thought that he was but the instrument in an unseen hand for hammering out the shield which should one day defend Europe from Tartar robbers such as he was. The Turanian poison secreted the future antidote to itself, and the name of that antidote was Venice. End of section 9